0: The M-Store, where they're all Grizz all the time. Time to circle back around with one of our good buddies and one of our favorite segments here on this show. It is a Business Angle, presented by Blackfield Communications. Justin Angle, University of Montana business professor, joins us every other Tuesday here on Nuanez Now. And Justin, I know you're a track guy, so you must have been uh, impressed, at least, to say the least, with a lot of the performances around the state this weekend. Did you keep an eye on it, or, or what were you doing over Memorial Day?
1: Oh man! Well, it was kind of a lot of family jams. My wife was out of town, and so I was on point with the kids. We kind of did it all. We did a little camping, a little uh, time by the river. Just you know, just kind of soaked it up and did keep an eye on just the outstanding performances by the folks, uh, the athletes over at at Sentinel and, and the other places. And you know that um, you know the last fellow you mentioned, Cruz. Just thinking about like. A fellow that can do so many things, right? The hurdles, the the the, tip, the javelin, the jumping. I mean, these these, these kids are just amazing and, and the, the 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 number of events they can perform at a high level in is, is pretty inspiring. Well, that's why Zach Cruz, I can't wait to have him on
0: the show because he is he is among the most diverse athletes I've ever seen. I mean, this kid is the best defensive end prospect in the state of Montana. I think he's a future yeah. high level division one tight end. But imagine a defensive end and a tight end that's also a state champion in the Hurdles, who's also a state champion in the Javelin, who also got a silver medal or maybe a bronze medal, but definitely placed at the state wrestling championship as well. So he's got all of the skills and unbelievable athletes. So we will be excited to welcome Zach Cruz onto the show here uh, in about, oh, I'd say 25 minutes. Uh, Justin, let's talk first and foremost about Naomi Osaka, our good friend Carolyn, the chick who doesn't know sports. Talked about this last week during her weekly segment about how Naomi Osaka, who, if you don't know, she's a rising star in women's tennis, twenty-three years old, um, she is sort of the the heir apparent, maybe maybe the next great one. There's a lot of people talking about her as maybe the the person that takes over that seat as sort of the queen of of women's tennis. But going into um, the French Open, she basically said, "Hey, I'm I'm I don't want to get my mind." altered or or screwed up by having to answer questions that take me down thought patterns that I don't want to have. I'm, I'm into visualization. I'm into getting myself mentally prepared from a positive perspective. So I'm not going to do pre, um, match or pre event media. And that was met with, um, a little bit of resistance, particularly because she is one of the top players, uh, in the entire, uh, ranks of, of, women's professional tennis. She's probably most uh, famously known for defeating Serena Williams a couple years ago uh, at the U.S. Open. But then this comes uh, around where then Naomi Osaka over the weekend withdrew from the French Open, yeah. citing that she needed some time away. And so, Justin, sort of take us through this because I think that there's actually more to the story than just uh, an athlete maybe not wanting to deal with a cantankerous press. This could be something that uh, is a little bit bigger than, than just that specific.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of dimensions to this story, and that's why it caught my eye. Um, And, you know, I, I think first and foremost, like, you know, Naomi Osaka cites, you know, mental health as a formidable challenge in her life and the genesis of her challenges. Um, go back to that U.S. Open final in 2018. And if you c- recall, that is the the, the the sort of match that went down, um, you know, in, in infamy with Serena Williams getting in a big confrontation with the chair umpire and the crowd was... Um, you know, hugely in favor of Serena in in that match, and you could see Osaka won the match, and she was you know in tears. And actually, Serena kind of was the one who kind of came to her her I don't want to say rescue, but support. She was supportive on the on the podium there. But you know, Osaka says that was the the start of some of her struggles with anxiety and depression. She she gets um, you know those those. You gotta, you gotta think of what these athletes are trying to do. They're trying to perform on the court; that's their job. Um, But they also gotta, you know, answer questions. That's a big part of, um, you know, what we expect out of these these performers as well. Uh, But it's an interesting question. If that causes her undue stress that can come at a cost to her ability to perform as an athlete. Like, how do we navigate that? We've got a system built around, you know, giving the media access to these athletes. It's sort of thought of as part of the job. Um, but if it's detrimental to the athletes, um, you know, that, that's, that, it, that just could get interesting. Coulter, I guess I'll throw it back on you. Like, a lot of this centers around press conferences. Sure. I find press conferences in general to, you know, it's like 99% of them are kind of useless, except yeah. for that 1% of the time that you get something interesting and unexpected. Right. But, right. Um, yeah, what's your take on this as, as somebody who, who, you know, works hard to get access to these to these athletes? Yeah, man, this is a very interesting
0: one for me because I am fully on uh, both sides of these uh, of this issue. So I guess I will start by this. One of my most favorite books, uh, I, I, when I was coming up through journalism school, I tried to read books from the best journalists around. And I think that that's a, a huge sure. part to honing your craft is, is consuming the best and then trying to replicate it in, in, in the most authentic way that you can. And one of my favorite sports writers is John Feinstein, who worked for the Washington Post for quite some time, and he's written many great sports books, but one of his uh, most famous and most uh, revered books is called One-on-One. And it's all about some of the tactics and ways that he used his one-on-one interviewing skills to then get some of the best stories in his career. But it's also almost like a, a piece of advice book for a young journalist because he mentions in that book multiple times that he never asks questions at press conferences. He never will. He never has. And he never will, because he thinks that's a a way not only to. Uh, he thinks that they're cutting. They're they're very generic and a lot of times filled with just cliches. But he also said that's a way to let your co- competition, your your best. Uh, Quotes go to your competitions. You don't want to ask the great story that gets the great, or the great question, excuse me, that gets the great quote that then runs in the competitor's newspaper. And so I always thought that was interesting advice. Well, when I was first uh, working as a beat writer, Covering first Central Washington University and then Montana State University, I used that advice. And this was before uh, sort of the influx of, of online media and the rise of social media and all of that. So I used to be able to go to press conferences and I would always ask the head coach questions because I do think that, you know, sometimes setting the tone uh, with the head coach is important and also I think I have a, a, a high football IQ especially compared to a lot of the the greener members of the the media in Montana so I always thought, okay, well if I'm sharing the, the actual X's and O's and stuff with those guys and it's getting in my c- competitors stories, that's okay because I want to get it right and I want the coach to know that at least somebody understands the ins and outs of the game, but that's only one part of it. I was always able then to then get interviews with kids after press conferences or ask the sports information department for specific interviews with individuals uh, after the press conference was over, even if those guys didn't attend the press conference. Well, those media protocols at the college level have gotten a lot stricter. And usually now, particularly on game day Saturdays, the only access you're going to have is to the head coach and the players only during the press conference. So I had to scrap my John Feinstein rule and – Basically, I have to ask questions at these press conferences. Okay, that's fine. Sure. That is that is what it is. But then when it comes to uh, media access for players, there's been a fair amount of occurrences over the years when the Grizz or the Bobcats or another Big Sky Conference team that we cover, will, they'll, lost, they'll lose a game, and it has been a heartbreaking game. And the coach will make a decision to not bring any players. And I understand maybe not wanting to have your uh, players sitting up in front of a TV camera when they've been crying or when they're emotional. And, uh, you know, maybe that's a tough thing to do. But I've always erred on the side of the other side and and thinking that in life, you're going to face adversity. And sometimes, uh, actually a lot of times in life, life is all about facing the music. And so, you know, it's not pleasant to sit up in front of the media and explain why you might have lost. It's not pleasant to talk about maybe yourself or one of your teammates that are having a fumble that maybe costs you the game. But it also is a part of affirming uh, your truth and your honesty. And and I think it's a part of of coming up in the world. And I think it's a great life skill. I think if you can emotionally uh, harness yourself and and carry yourself with class after a loss particularly, that bodes well for your future. And I think that oftentimes I actually think that's undersold from the athletics standpoint. Like if you're a guy that's a spokesman for your athletic team at the college level, I think you should be using that on your resume. If you're a guy that the people, that the media really goes Goes to for quotes, or or that you know you have a high IQ, so they want to interview you so they can use you for their stories, whether it's in print or online or TV. I think that you know, sending a clip of a press conference after a loss about how you can articulate yourself is a huge selling point to an employer because it shows them that you're resilient and tough and you can think on your feet and you can compartmentalize and all that. That's all to say, then, though. In a Naomi Osaka's case, she is in under a, a largely different spotlight. There's a, a couple worlds between a press conference at the University of Montana and a French Open press conference. And this is where I do sort of gravitate towards the athletes. One, tennis is such a distinctly individual sport that I do think that if it's part of your process to not want storylines or question marks. like This comes to mind with golf, right? Jordan Spieth, he had his epic meltdown at number 12 at Augusta five or six years ago when he hit it in the water and he took a nine and he blew this huge lead. He's never been the same golfer again. And he gets asked about that meltdown over and over and over again. And you wonder if it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, it's the same thing in tennis. I don't think you ever want... Your your errors or your or your uh, mistakes or your uh, misgivings, any of that stuff, to be reminded to you if you've been trying to block it out. I also think that when it comes to press conferences for the national media now. You have so many people sitting there at the French Open, hundreds of reporters. They're all trying to get their own story, their own unique quote. And so they're going to ask you questions that are just completely unpertinent to the things that are happening and maybe could derail your mentality. So I don't know where I sit with this when it comes to high-level individual athletes that are professionals because it is really, I mean, I think it should be a sort of necessity to promote the game, but I also think that, if you make the decision that you're not going to perform as well, then that should be your decision. So I don't know. I, I, I think I'm on both sides of this thing.
1: Well, I mean, I think that there's this threshold that it's really murky and hard for people to see or understand, and that's the mental health aspect, right? I mean, if Naomi Osaka has a mental health issue and this is an impediment to, or, you know, or this is, um, you know these interactions with the media are, are are, th- are is something that could exacerbate that condition. It's important that she gets the care she needs, whatever sure. that looks like. And I think it highlights a really interesting kind of dimension to, uh, that we as sports fans kind of experience. Like you know, we see an injury on the field, a physical injury, and it's sort of very easy to see, right? Like, oh, that guy broke his leg. Joe Feinsman's bone is sticking out of his. Leg, You know, that's very clear. Um, It's not always that graphic, but you know what I mean. With a mental health thing, you know, it is difficult. And I think society is at a moment where it's starting to kind of grapple with mental health in many ways. And you know, when Osaka has interacted with the media, she's been quite deft. I mean, she's she's of Asian descent. She's got you know, she's African American as well, and she's been asked to speak about social justice issues and has done so. I think with grace, um, she's got an interesting opportunity to. Um, you know, maybe speak out about her challenges with mental health as an athlete. And, um, you see some athletes, you know, Steph Curry, um, and Serena Williams starting to dip their toe into the waters of being supportive of Osaka's potential leadership in that space. Um, but you know, the flip side is, you know, if an athlete's struggling and you've got the, 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 power structure kind of, Punishing her—that um, just isn't—I don't think—a good look for women's tennis, right? These, 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 um, these major tournaments, the Grand Slams, like drawing a hard line in the sand and saying we're going to remove you from these tournaments if you don't do these required press events. I don't think that's a way to be treating the number two player in the world and the, you know, the the highest paid uh, female athlete of 2020. I think there's great risk for the organization at a moment where they have somebody who's playing at a high level who could be a great advocate uh, for the sport on so many different dimensions. So I, I you know, I think um, from a business standpoint, you know, women's tennis should um, think very carefully about how they, 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 they manage this situation and ultimately, hopefully think creatively about ways that they can get uh, Osaka back on the tennis court. Because I, I you know, I think the sport's better, with her, both from a competitive standpoint and then from a value of, of women's tennis in general standpoint. Everybody's better with her on the court.
0: It's a business angle here on Nuanas Now. Justin Angle joining us on the Rangich Brothers RV phone line. We do this every other Tuesday, talking about the overlay between business and sports. Talking about Naomi Osaka, one of the top women's tennis players in the world. She withdraws from the French Open because of um, not wanting to do engagements with the media, in the name of protecting her own mental health. And that's the last part of this I want to talk about, Justin, As you did mention that mental health has become uh, a talking yeah. point and a big one, especially among professional athletes. Kevin Love has been on the, the forefront of this. But, um, you know, this, this sort of all came to a, uh, the forefront about mm, eight, ten years ago when the Los Angeles Lakers won their last, uh, most recent NBA championship, and Ron Artest hit the great a uh, three-pointer that was the game-deciding and ultimately series-deciding shot. And he has the famous moment in the interview where he says, I want to thank my my Lord and Savior, and then I want to thank this, that, and the other thing he says, and I have to thank my therapist. And then he goes off about his therapist for a couple minutes. And that was the first time I could ever remember somebody saying, I got to thank my therapist. But if you remember about Ron Artest, and by the way, this got made into a great movie, a great documentary that actually debuted at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival here in Missoula, and we had the filmmakers on our show But they were talking about how Ron Artest went from a guy from the streets uh, in Queensbridge, New York, to a guy that was infamous in the NBA for his temper, to then a guy who's lost his temper to such a high level that he went into the stands and punched a fan in the face in perhaps the ugliest moment of PR in the history of the NBA, to then a guy who was blissful and marketing himself as a a, a a bearer of world peace and hitting game-winning shots next to Kobe Bryant. And what an amazing story of overcoming mental obstacles. But in, in my study of athletes for the last uh, decade plus, I have often found that athletes are such a beacon of health and inspiration because of their physical gifts, but also their discipline to uh, maximize their physical gifts, and when you look at so many of these athletes, they're so impressive physically. Their dedication, their body is so profound. But oftentimes, that is a mask for deeper issues. And I think a lot of athletes, especially individual athletes, are they are they have demons. And and but I also think that can be their motivation. And oftentimes, their outlet is the sport that they do. But then, we, then it begs into question, how detrimental is the media to the mindset of an athlete? Because oftentimes this social media and, and all the vitriol that these athletes receive on Twitter and Facebook or, you know, just the snarky columns that people write because there is – the whole media industry is completely lawless now because there is no regulation. You can have whatever you want on the internet, unfortunately, so you can just write these outrageous columns like the guys who run Outkick the Coverage they have this new thing where they their whole thing is to do analysis of women sideline reporters just completely degrading these these women saying uh, everything from you guys couldn't ask a real question only the producers tell you the questions in their ear which is that in itself is just poppycock that's fully false but second analyzing these women's outfits and and you know degrading them for for dressing a certain way and, and using just disgusting language to describe them i guess what i'm getting at though is I do think that a lot of times athleticism is the uh, is the uh, the projection of somebody sort of shielding themselves mentally, but also you wonder how much just the modern media accentuates the exploitation and and maybe brings those those mental pressures to the
1: forefront even more. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, it, these folks are under a microscope, and right at the beginning of this segment, we were talking about how there's great rewards to being. Um, you know, eloquent and engaging with the media. And it, it can be a great set of skills that could reward you in your career, um, you know, a- after your competitive time is over. Uh, it can create a ton of potential uh, benefits, particularly for like student athletes at the University of Montana. Cause very few of them go on to some professional career in sports. Um, but at the same time, like it is a pressure cooker in many ways. And I think. You know, as you know, it manifests in different ways in different sports, right? Sometimes it manifests with discomfort with the media. Sometimes it manifests with eating disorders or, you know, self-abuse or, you know, just other um, kind of dark things that um, we don't quite... I mean, we understand some of it at a psychological level, but we don't quite, um, as a public, kind of understand that, yeah, just because these people are, are sort of... Um, you know, just epitomize physical health that, that, that they might um, not struggle. We generalize to that, from that to mental health, and I think that's really dangerous. And, and you know, hopefully this, this situation with Osaka will maybe sharpen that up and just um, help us all understand that, that life is more complex and, and people have challenges that we can't see. And we have to be, we have to have grace and, and figure out ways to get people the help they need. Justin Angle joining us. It is a business
0: angle. We do this every other Tuesday, business angle, a overlay between business and sports. Justin is a professor of business at the University of Montana Business School. It is proudly presented by Blackfoot Communications. Justin, one last thing for you then. Roger Goodell, he's got a, a contract that's coming up in March of 2024. That might sound like it's a long ways away, but it's really not. And by that time, he'll be 65. And uh, there's no real um, person in place that could be an obvious successor. He was sort of the obvious successor to Paul Tagliabue, who's sort of the obvious successor to Pete Rozelle, but we don't really have that in place now. He has among the most polarizing jobs in the United States of America. He has received an unbelievable amount of scrutiny during his time as the commissioner of the NFL. He has also brought the NFL to... Um, heights unseen when it comes to profit margins and TV deals and the exposure of the game. So this seems like uh, a, a position that while will receive a lot of scrutiny is one that's very important, especially when it comes to this, the the fabric of American sports. So where are we at with Roger Goodell and uh, his upcoming contract ex- expiration?
1: Yeah, I mean some really interesting reporting by Peter King uh, came out um, over the weekend and You know, thinking about it from a business standpoint, right, like a a CEO and a board of directors are typically responsible for establishing a succession plan. I mean, they need to be thinking about continuity of operations and profitability um, for their shareholders. And the job of the commissioner, in this case, is to provide, you know, the job of any CEO, rather, is to provide, uh, you know, return to shareholders and in this case the job of the commissioner is to increase the value of the franchises for the owners I mean that's why he gets paid what he gets paid and he's done a fantastically good job at that in spite of the scandals in spite of the fact that the public doesn't really like him no, that really matters like the people he reports to are the owners and um you know looking at his tenure in sort of the recent times i mean he's he's got the, the league set up really well these franchises are worth more than they've ever been worth uh, the next 9 years of labor negotiations are locked up with the collective bargaining agreement and he just uh, ushered through a 113 billion dollar media deal um mm-hmm. So things are working, and I think the owners probably, at least according to Peter King, is the preference is, hey, you know, it might be sort of time to think about succession, but I don't think they're in a a particular hurry to do it. So you might see a contract extension. Um, You might see a short extension with an explicit plan of who to groom as the next CEO. Um, But I think it's going to be a story to, to keep our eyes on. And it just, you know, we've talked about this over this segment over the last few months. It's like the owners have the power here and the players and the fans. I mean, that, that, that's not really part of the equation. Um, we're seeing more and more players get into ownership, not so much in the NFL. But um, it's going to be interesting to see how this power dimension um, plays out over the next uh, several years um, because the, the, the owners have had lock solid power on, on the NFL for a long time. Last question for you, then, just just broadly from a a marketing and business
0: perspective, the NFL has reached this point that is, um, it's such a double edged sword because on one, on one hand, it the NFL it literally does not matter what happens in the NFL. Nothing that an NFL player could do could be bad for business, no matter what the scandal is. Even if you have domestic assaults or aggravated DUIs or literally anything, as much as Aaron Hernandez's murder trial, it still keeps the NFL leading the sports news shows every single day, 365 days a year, even with the rash of domestic assaults that we saw in the NFL before they really really cracked down on that, even before the personal conduct code policy was implemented, every scandal did didn't make hardly anybody turn away from watching the NFL. Basically the only thing that we've seen that has incurred or inhibited NFL um, viewership has been protesting of the flag. other than that, Hardly anybody's turning off their TV because uh, Alden Smith is is getting his fourth DUI, or Ray Rice is punching his girlfriend in the elevator. Nothing has really um, turned people away from it, and I think it's a uh, I think it's a revelation of the the, for lack of a better term, bloodlust that we have in America. But on the other hand at what price does it come with? Because sometimes you might be just selling your soul uh, to get this uh, this sort of exposure. So what do you think of the dynamic that the NFL has created? Because the morality is certainly lacking, but they've reached this point where they're pretty much untouchable. It doesn't really matter what happens. Good, all publicity is good publicity, at least in this case.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think just, you look at business history, and you know the the, the notion that uh, an entity is untouchable or can do no wrong. Um, you know, that starts to get. That's when we're sort of into risky terrain. Um, you know, it, it can work for a monopoly, and the NFL is a bit of a monopoly. It does have competition for eyeballs, but I do think that you know one thing the NFL has not been. Is complacent. I mean, they've managed through these crises. Um, The public might not like how that's been done, Um, but I don't think the NFL. The NFL might sort of be acting as if it's untouchable, but I think they're 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 not. You you can't say they're complacent, right? And so, yeah. I mean, I I think the things that are going to hurt the game. um, It's it's probably good that we don't have. you know, well, we'll see what, the, what unfolds with the season. But yeah, those political um, dimensions that unfolded the last couple of years—hopefully, those will go away, and you know, Twitter feeds won't, uh, you know, from our elected officials won't be at play with um, with, with with all those things. And then, I, I do think, though, that like to me, the biggest threat to the NFL is the health and safety of the players. You know, more and more research about the effects of concussion and the catastrophic catastrophic injuries, and, you know, you did mention our bloodlust as a society. I mean, we do kind of um, want to see those things. We might not articulate it that way, but, you know, if it becomes, um, if the game becomes sort of, if the dangers of the game become so apparent that we have to change the game in such a way that it's not as entertaining I think that's the moment at which the NFL is at risk. And so we'll sort of see how that plays out over the next few years. A conversation that could last a long time and a conversation we will continue.
0: Indeed. But for now, we'll let you go, Justin. It's been a business angle with Justin Angle, University of Montana business professor, as we talk about the overlay between business and sports. We do this every other Tuesday here on Nuwana now, 1029 ESPN Missoula. It is proudly presented by Blackfoot Communications. Justin, thanks for spending so much time today with us, man. We'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks.
1: Sounds good, Colter. Be well.